This is Letters from the Lunchbox, a podcast centered on the short stories written by author Raylene Burnett. Her work was inspired by powerful messages a father left on 3x5 cards in his children's lunch sacks as he battled cancer. He'd sometimes write words filled with humor, or other times he'd somberly ponder the future or offer gentle reflections. Perhaps most of all, he'd relay encouragement and well wishes for all that lay ahead. Each episode, we invite a guest to share their story and ask the question, what would your 3x5 card say? host Olivia, and here's author Raylene Burnett with this week's story, Surrender. The sun is setting, and it's a September day, and I am kneeling on the grass underneath a large locust tree trying to fill a bird feeder, and the bag of bird seed that I'm holding is the deluxe mix designed especially to attract all kinds of wild birds. The bird feeder was a gift that I didn't even really know I wanted until I unwrapped it and saw what was inside that package and imagined all the adventures that I was going to have attracting and watching birds come close to my house. So I fill the clear tube of the bird feeder up to the brim. Some of the bird seeds fall off into the grass and I pick up the copper lid and replace the top. Next to me on the grass is a long black hook. There's a hook on the top and a hook on the bottom designed to slip over the top branch of a tree and designed on the bottom to hang a bird feeder. Kevin is standing next to me and he is holding a three foot cut out section of an old garden hose. He picks up the black metal hook lying on the ground and slips the garden hose over the metal hook because he was worried that the tree was going to be harmed by the metal of the hook. He lifts up the hook as high as he can and slips it over a branch of the tree. I lift up the bird feeder and loop the silver hanging wire over the bottom of the hook. Then we stand back and we admire our work. And we look at the placement of the bird feeder and we think, oh yeah, this is perfect. So many birds will come. Then we go over to the porch, sit on the steps, and wait, and no birds come. How long do you think it will take, I ask Kevin. He, he doesn't know. He shrugs his shoulders, and so I say, well, let's go in the house. We might be scaring them off. So we come in the house, and we stand in front of the big picture window where we have the perfect view of the bird feeder, and we wait, and we wait and no birds come. And Kevin gets kind of tired of waiting and he leaves. But I wait longer and longer and longer 
and no birds come. So the next day I check again, fairly confident that the bird seed will be gone. But it's not. And every day for two weeks, I check on that bird feeder, certain that those birds will come. And each day I am disappointed. And I don't understand why. Because I see the birds everywhere. I see them in the trees. I see them perched on the roofs. I see them hunting for food. I see them flying around. I see them hopping on the grass. I see them everywhere. And I don't understand why they are not coming to my bird feeder. This is the premium Oscar winning blue ribbon expensive bird seed and they are not coming. And it's free. It's free for the taking. It's right there. But they ignore it. They fly by and they continue to do it the hard way. They hunt for insects on their own. They look for grains. They do it on their own with no help. And I suppose I shouldn't have been so frustrated watching the birds miss what was right in front of them. The first few days after Kevin was diagnosed with cancer, I felt on my own. I felt abandoned. I felt like God didn't care. I felt like he wasn't there and that I was sinking and my life was melting. Of course, I wasn't searching for seeds, but I was searching for help. And I didn't realize it then, but help was right there, right in front of me, and I was missing it. But God reminded me when I received a text because he knew long before, long before Kevin was diagnosed and he had prepared comfort and help and sent someone to wipe away my tears. The text was from Roberta. Roberta was a coworker who was hired several months before Kevin was diagnosed with cancer. And one day, soon after she was hired, she told me her story. It was in the afternoon when the phones were quiet and the sun shone warm through the windows. And she talked about her husband who was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. There had been no warning and she talked about his passing and she talked about the grief and her family and the children. And as I listened, not knowing then what was in my future, I remembered thinking, I could never do this. I could never do this. And now her story reflects my own story. And what are the odds out of all the people in the city that I live that Roberta, a few months before Kevin was diagnosed, got hired? And all the texts she sent me and all the visits that we had, all the phone calls, all the talks, and all of the tears were gifts from a God who does not slumber.
and wants us to know that through our distress and our difficulty, he does not want us to be alone. And he wants us to know that he knows. So as for those birds a few years ago, when I stood in front of the window, it took about a month, I think, before any birds showed up. But they did come. And instead of pecking at the dirt alone, trying to solve everything on their own, they learned to just fly up a little bit, to land and be still, and to partake of that deluxe food. And now today, years later, I still stand and watch the birds. I watch them come in the variety of colors and sizes, come and eat. And I am reminded of a God that always feeds his children. In Matthew chapter 6, it says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? I don't know about you guys, but I can recount a lot of times in my life when I've been waiting on the birds, or even been like the birds a lot. The ones who are looking in the ground, in the bushes, in the grass for food, when there's food right above them. Honestly, I'm probably in a stage of life where I'm doing that now. But it's important to remember to look up and to be patient and wait on the Lord and what he has in store. Most everyone knows the scripture, ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. And again, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I am asking, I am knocking, I am pounding on the door, and no one seems to be there or to even want to answer the door. Why does it feel like that sometimes? Or for some, all the time. This quote makes me think of something that my mom actually shared with me about the silent Saturdays. How in between Christ's death and resurrection, there was a Saturday that was really quite silent. I know I've had many silent Saturdays. I'm in some now, and I know that there are probably many more to come. But the one thing that can give us hope, just like it did with my mom and Roberta, and just like it did with the birds who finally found the food, is Jesus Christ. He'll be right by our side because he is risen. And I know that I firmly believe, and so does my mom, that God is so much more active in our lives than we initially believe. So if you can't see the hand of God now, if you can't find the bird food, (laughs) trust in God's character. Because despite the challenges and the darkness and the times where we feel like God doesn't know what's going on in our lives, Because of him, we truly can find peace. We can find joy. We can find even the bird food and greater meaning in life. Alex Hadley Dunlap grew up in Orem, Utah, and now lives in Huntington Beach, California. She got her JD graduating from law school at BYU and is now a lawyer across Utah, Nevada, and California. She's married to Tim Dunlap, 
and the mother of seven children and three pug dogs, who she affectionately loves, both the children and the dogs. She's been highly involved with government social service groups since 2011, and five of her children were actually adopted from foster care. Alex, welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Well, Alex, you have the most beautiful family, and maybe I'm a little bit biased because I love your family, but, you know, you've had a bit of an untraditional and maybe more difficult journey of getting to where you are now. Um, Can you take us back in time a little bit and tell us your story of, of really how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that my journey has been more difficult than anyone else's. It's interesting when you, you know, when you talk to other people and hear other people's stories and then you think, wow, I have absolutely nothing to complain about. My life has been amazing. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to share my story. I think my story is very miraculous and I'm probably going to cry a lot, but I love sharing my story because it is, it really lets other people know about God's love for them and God's timing in, in things and just that God is in the details of every single one of our lives. I guess I will start with um, meeting my son, Matt. Um, so I, I found myself as... Um, a 30-year-old single woman. I spent most of my adulthood in single adult wards. Scary, very scary. <laughs> um, but I, you know, growing up, I, I grew up in the church. I thought that I was going to be married in the temple at, you know, 20 years old and have 10 kids and be a stay-at-home mom. And and that is not the way my life turned out at all. Um, I was 35, and um, I had been married before. Um, my my marriage did not work out. I did not have kids. Um, I had had a couple of miscarriages in, in my previous marriage, and so I found myself 35, single, with no kids, and the clock was definitely ticking. I, um, I got involved with... Um, CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, which is um, a government agency who uh, gets paired up with a child in the foster care system. And my son, in this case, was living in a group home. And I had been involved with CASA for several years. Matt was probably the sixth child that I had been involved with. And for some reason, when I met Matt, um, I knew he was supposed to be my son. and uh, I, I had only gone out with him once. I think I took him to a skate park. He was 11 years old the first time that I met him. And uh, I, have, I have a huge family, and I, I sent my family a text message, you know, like 15 people, and said, hey, I'm going to adopt an 11-year-old Filipino boy. You're going to have a new grandson. <laughs> no, my, um, my family knows that I'm serious and that I do crazy things. And so they were just like, okay, great. We're going to have, you know, a new member of our family. Um, and, and I did, I, I called up Matt's social worker. I committed the ultimate CASA sin. They tell you when you uh, go to CASA, do not try to adopt your case child. It never works out. And I wanted them to use me as as an example of it working out instead of, you know, only having examples where it didn't work. And 
you know, I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be really hard. I thought, you know, I might not even see any gratitude until the next life. But I told myself, I'm just not going to quit. Um, you know, I said, the only way that I'm going to fail at this is if I give up. And I knew that I had the personality that no matter what happened, I would not give up. And um, Matt did have a temper. He punched a few holes in my walls. Um, you know, I couldn't get him to go to school a few times, but, you know, he had a very, very uh, traumatized past, as you can imagine, as many kids in the foster care system do. And But I just, I gave him a lot of love and, um, you know, I just told my, I told him and I told myself, I'm not giving up on you. So, you know, and we've had, we've had several moments over the past, it's been nine years now. Um, and I just reminded him, I said, Matt, stop jumping off the ledge every time we have an incident. We've been through way worse than this. And you just need to realize that you are my son. I don't care what you do. I will always love you. You will always be part of this family. And, you know, let, when, when we have disagreements, because we will, um, I'm not perfect. I'm going to do things wrong. But when we have those disagreements, just realize that, you know, we're, we're still family and we're in this together. But if you look at it from Matt's perspective, um, you know, like here he's moving in with this, you know, crazy blonde Mormon girl and, you know, not knowing anything about me or, or anybody from my family and, you know, not knowing what his life is going to be like or, you know, it must have been terrifying. He just graduated um, from electrician school. He, he's got his electrician certificate. He's, he's looking for a job. He's living on his own. He, you know, he's only 21. He's, he's got his own apartment. He calls me once a week just to talk, if not more often. He comes over and does his laundry. He comes over for Sunday dinner. He ends every conversation with I love you. It took him eight years to tell me that he loves me. So that's the story of Matt. Um, so I'll tell the story of, of my little girls now and the miracle of them. Um, but so, so Tim and I met when I was mm, 38 and we dated for two years before we got married. We waited, I don't know, four or five months before we even introduced um, the kids because both of us were of the opinion that, hey, we don't want to get our kids to attach to someone emotionally until we know for sure that. Well, not know for sure, but until we have a good idea that, you know, this is going to work out and go further. And so then we introduced the kids um, and, and we got married. We were dating for two years and we got married. And, um, you know, we, I'll say we immediately tried to um, start having kids because I was 40 years old when we got married. And um, I didn't have a hard time. Um, getting pregnant, but I had had, you know, a couple miscarriages in, in um, my previous marriages. So, you know, I just thought, I thought everything was fine. Um, and we went to a, a fertility doctor. We did, um, well, after two miscarriages, then we went to a fertility doctor. I had uh, one round of in vitro fertilization. And I just thought, well, I just thought I had bad eggs. And so I thought that, you know, as long as he could, you know, do the testing on the eggs and that, um, you know, if he could get a good egg 
and implant it, then, you know, I thought everything would be fine. I actually had a, a blessing from my bishop saying, it, you know, right before uh, the egg was implanted that, that it was going to work. Um, and so I was, you know, I was like, oh, this is going to work. This is, you know, what's going to happen for us. And, and it didn't work. And I was devastated. Um, yeah, it was, we only had one, one viable embryo and, and it didn't work. And, you know, even after that blessing, I wasn't mad at my bishop. I really wasn't. I, you know, I thought, oh, there must be, you know, some other meaning here. Maybe I misunderstood. You know, I think he probably felt worse than I did, um, for giving me the blessing. But, um, so that, yeah, that was, that was a really, really low point for me. Um, and I, I remember, geez, it was probably nine months to a year after this. I had, I had gotten so low. I, I really didn't want to go on living. I, because I wanted to be a mom so bad. And it was so hard to be a stepmom and an adoptive mom and just not, like nobody was, nobody wanted to come over and be with me on Mother's Day. Uh, my stepkids were with their mom. Um, Matt was grieving his biological mom and I just, I just had a really hard time um, and I thought I was so depressed and at such a low point that I honestly felt like Tim and the kids would be better off without me and there was one night it was it was my younger brother Jeremy's birthday actually he would um, passed away from an overdose it was his birthday it was the uh, five-year anniversary of his death and I found myself curled up in the fetal position on my bathroom floor, um, uh, just bawling for, I don't know how long I was there, probably for a couple hours, um, just sobbing. And I, I can't, I can't really tell you what got me up off the bathroom floor. The, the miracle didn't happen that night. Um, Except that I realized the next day was my husband's birthday and I had to get up and go do something for his birthday. But it was the next morning when I was saying one of my very shallow prayers. Um, and I had stopped praying for what I wanted a long time before that. I thought, well, if God wanted to give me the miracle of a baby, then in vitro would have worked. I wasn't going to do it again because I thought, you know, God must have other plans for me. I honestly wasn't mad at God. I really wasn't. Um, I just, I just didn't like his plan. <laughs> I wasn't mad at him. <laughs> I just thought, you know, he must have something else planned for me that I don't really care for, that I don't like. <laughs> um, and, um, but I was, so I was saying my morning prayers and I, you know, I just kind of prayed for other people and, and tried to be grateful for what I had. And, you know, so I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for my dogs. I was always thankful for my dogs. 
Um, I was thankful for my job and, you know, I think I, I was thinking, oh, it's my girlfriend's birthday today. I need to do something special for her. And then, oh, wait, I was praying. And I felt the most intense love just come over me. And I can only describe it as a hug from my Savior. And I had... I had a 20-minute conversation, at least, with my Savior that morning. And he, he said, I never left you. I did not leave you crying alone on the bathroom floor that night. I've been here the whole time. He said, you're exactly where you need to be. Um, I have an amazing plan in store for you. Um, just, just surrender and, and wait and be patient. And I have something amazing in store for you. And, uh, that, that obviously saved my life because it brought me out of, of my depression. And I really, I went from being depressed and only thinking about myself to just trying to give myself to others. Um, um, trying to give myself to my husband, to my stepkids, to my son Matt. And, you know, just just surrendering to God and trying to listen to the Spirit and, and do what He had in mind for me. Um, and then we... Um, so it was a few months later where I mentioned to Tim that, hey, maybe we should get involved in foster care. Um, and that was a scary decision for us because we knew that the ultimate goal of foster care was um, reunification with birth parents. And we knew that, you know, we might get really attached to someone, someone else's child that, that God had in mind to be returned to them. Um, we weren't on the waiting list for very long probably only a month or so and we got a phone call that said hey we have a two-year-old little girl who who needs a home um, and we got Paisley I'd said I, I would love a little girl who looks like she might possibly be ours and and it was funny because um, my husband Tim is Mexican and the little girl that we got was half Caucasian and half Mexican so um, big brown eyes um, you know she just totally looked like she could have been ours she just immediately latched onto us she was calling us mom and dad um, and we had her for 14 months um, and it was looking like when you when you've had a foster child for that long and they're not reunified with their parents um, you know it was looking like we were going to be able to adopt her and uh, at the at the end of the 14 months though her, her dad had started having her biological dad had had uh, had been spending time having more visits with her and uh, the court basically gave us two weeks notice and said hey she's going to be reunified with her dad he, he was a good person though uh, that was the one thing that we you know we could say about him her, her biological dad was a really good person and he was trying um, and um, and and he wanted to try he had he had sobered himself up he'd been clean for a year and, and he wanted to try and be involved in her life. But man, the day that we lost Paisley was just, uh, 
oh, heart-wrenching. Um, and all those, those feelings that I had been having the year before, um, you know, and feeling so depressed. And I, I'll say that, you know, during the 14 months that we had Paisley, I had very strong impressions to fight for her. Um, and, and I know, you know, that those came from the savior that he was saying, Hey, you need to fight for her. And so then when we lost her, I thought, well, why, you know, why did we need to fight for her? If you were just going to take her away, that just makes it that much harder. Um, and so those two weeks, man, you know, it was like, you have to spend two weeks saying goodbye to a child that we were hoping to adopt that was that was a hard you know it was hard not to just cry every every night um man i remember that last night that we had for tim and i her in bed with us and man i don't know how any of us went to sleep that night because we just we just held her and cried thinking that we were never gonna see her again um and uh, yeah, the night that she left, we watched her drive off with her dad, packed up all of her stuff. Um, it like filled up his whole car, all this stuff that, you know, we had gotten for her and donations and stuff that we had bought for her. And we really thought that we would never see her again. Um, and uh, so this was on a Thursday night on Friday morning. It was my birthday weekend, and I, when I get depressed, I don't want to talk to anyone. <laughs> I don't want anyone coming over to hug me. I don't want anyone coming over to comfort me. I want to be left alone. In fact, I remember the bishop and his wife um, showing up, and I have one of those Dutch doors, and so they drove up in front of my house, and they saw me like run to the back of my house and they rang the doorbell. I was like, okay, I know they saw me. They know that I saw them see me. And I was like, do I go up there? You know, um, I think I eventually did go up there and talk. And she's like, you don't have to talk. You know, you can just cry. And so I'm like, all right, can you go now? <laughs> I think I, you know, I just, I just, I didn't feel like, I didn't want to be comforted. I just wanted to be sad. And, um, so this was a Friday. I waited for my husband to leave for work and I packed up my car. I got in my car. Um, I packed up all three of my dogs. This was in August. Yeah, it was like August 6th because my birthday was August 9th. And I was just like, I definitely don't want people coming over to tell me happy birthday. You know, I was like, and how old was I? 42, 43. Um, and I'm like, I'm... I'm way too old to have kids now. I just, it just, I just lost my one hope, you know, um, you know, this cute little girl who calls me mom and looks to me for things that she needed in life. And, and I just lost her. So I packed up my car. I started driving. I could feel the spirit saying, don't go. And I just said, I'm not doing anything wrong and I want to get away. So <laughs> I'm leaving. Um, and I started driving and, um, I think my intention was to hole up in my condo in Park City because nobody was in it at the time. Um, but I only got as far as Barstow, about three hours away and my brand new Volvo SUV started overheating. 
it had never had a problem before um, and the uh, the air conditioner was blowing out hotter so this was August in Barstow I think the temperature outside was like 118 degrees and my heater was blowing hotter and me being the uh, motivated person that I am um, I'm like I'll just turn off the air conditioning and roll the windows down and I'm still going you know and the spirit's still saying don't go everything will be fine don't go and I said I'm not doing anything wrong I'm going um, and I don't know, I made it another couple of miles and my car started sputtering and I, um, pulled over to the side of the road and just started sobbing and what the heck, you know, like I, I just want to get away. I just want to be alone for a while. Like I'm, I'm not going to do anything crazy. I'm not going to do anything bad. And I was still scheming of, of ways to get out of there. And then all three of my dogs started vomiting on me because they were overheating. Um, and you know, God knows that I can handle quite a bit, but when all three of my dogs are in pain and, um, and sick, uh, you know, I was like, do I rent a car? But I, I didn't want to leave my car in Barstow and, um, you know, uh, anyways, so I, pulled over and rented a very seedy motel room that had air conditioning, got my dogs cooled off, called my husband to tell him where I was because I didn't tell him where I was going. He was um, pretty worried about me. And uh, uh, I waited until midnight when it was a cool 80 degrees outside, got back in my car and drove home with no air conditioning. And the very next morning I got a phone call from my sister-in-law. Um, and I thought that she was just calling to um, tell me how sorry she was about, you know, losing Paisley. And so I didn't answer her call. And she got my voicemail. And I, I listened to her voicemail. And her voicemail said, um, Alex, I know you probably don't want to talk right now, but we have a situation. Um, she said, a three-year-old little girl just got dropped off at our house. And she needs family. And uh, we've actually been talking to her birth mother for over a year about you guys. We didn't want to tell you about it until we knew for sure that her mother really was ready for adoption and, um, and that she was willing to consider you guys as a family, she said. But, but she's ready now. We've told her about you and, and if you're interested, then you and Tim need to come out here and you need to meet her and you need to meet her mom. This was the day after I lost Paisley and my car broke down in Barstow. And uh, so, you know, I talked to Tim. I'm like, both of us were terrified because we had just lost one and we knew this wasn't for certain, but you know, we just felt like, okay, the timing's a little weird, so we need to go and we need to see what this is about and if, if this could be our daughter. Um, and so um, Tim looked over the Volvo. He said, everything looks fine to me. Air conditioning is working just fine. Um, so we got back in the Volvo, drove to Utah. Yes, it was still 118 degrees in Barstow. We drove right through, not a problem at all. We've never had the car fixed. It's never had a problem. Uh, I know I wasn't making this up because all three of my dogs had vomited all over the car. <laughs> we did have to clean that all out. Um, but the car was perfectly fine. And we drove to Utah um, 
we met our little girl Quinn. Um, there, there's so many. I, I, I can't get into all the details because this would take forever. But there, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of the little details. Um, Quinn is an identical twin, and um, her identical twin was killed in a car accident when she was a year and a half old. Um, her identical twin's name is Hadley, which is my maiden name. Um, and. Uh, it's just these these tiny little coincidences um, we we bought a stuffed animal we didn't want to show up empty-handed um, so we bought Quinn a, a stuffed animal a little puppy dog I think we found at Target and uh, coincidentally we had bought the exact same stuffed animal for um, Paisley um, a Target as something that she could take home with her both of these little girls named their stuffed dog bingo um just just so many little details that lined up um quinn's birth mom um who you know an absolutely amazing person um she she had mentioned to us that one of the things that was really important to her was finding a half mexican family and that she had been having a hard time finding that because Quinn is also half Mexican. But so we were in Utah for, I don't know, three or four days. Um, everything seemed to be going really well. Birth mother really liked us. We were still scared to death. Um, but we were headed to um, the social services office to start the process of adoption with Quinn. Uh, I was dry. Tim had to come back and, and go to work. I, I worked from home, so I was able to stay in Utah for as long as I needed to. But it had only been three or four days, so I was on my way to the um, social services office, um, and I get a phone call from Paisley's birth dad uh, on my way there. And he says, uh, you know, I'm like, what's wrong? You know, is something going on? Is she okay? And he says, um, Alex, she misses you guys. And I really don't want her to lose what she found with you guys. He said, I'm not getting any help from her birth mom. I can't do this alone. Are, are you willing to continue to be part of her life? <laughs> um, let me think about it. Yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> I am. Um, so I, you know, I, I didn't tell him why I was in Utah. I just said, hey, we're, you know, out of town for a few days because, you know, I still didn't know for sure whether or not this was going to happen. Um, but, you know, I think I was in Utah for a week before I, I drove home with, uh, you know, a power of attorney. And then we finalized the adoption um, fairly recently. Um, but uh, so I you know, I drove home, I, I called Paisley's birth dad, Frank, and I said, hey, all right, I'm, I'm headed home. I actually have another three-year-old little girl um, that I will be bringing home with me. So Paisley will have a friend, um, you know, and I said, we're going to be starting the adoption process. They're going to be in the same school, in the same grade. Um, and uh, so we still, geez, I don't know, this was a year and a half ago. We just barely finalized the adoption of Quinn. About two weeks ago, we were able to take her to the temple and get her sealed to us. Um, I was able to buy her a plane ticket to come out to Utah, and um, it had the name of Quinn Dunlap on it. I've done that before, but <laughs> this was the first time that um, 
it was it was legal and it was official so that was really really fun to to buy her that plane ticket that had our our name on it um we still see paisley seven days a week we usually have her on sundays so basically i i went from not really wanting to live anymore because i didn't think that i could have kids to um you know now having um twin little girls that um that I just adore. I feel undeserving, um, and I wish I had surrendered to what my Savior wanted a long time ago. Wow. Well, Alex, you know, there's so many things your life and story has taught me, and, and thank you for being willing to share it with me and with everyone listening. But I think the two things just as you were talking that have always really just impacted me is one that God is working in the details and the overall design of our lives even when it doesn't feel like it and we're on the bathroom floor <laughs> and then two I loved what you said the word surrender and I think surrendering goes along really well with seeking asking and, and expecting miracles so when it feels like our lives are in chaos and we're in the fetal position on the bathroom floor and God has abandoned us, how, how can we, I don't know, how could we better surrender or take comfort in the knowledge that he is in control? So one of the things um, that has really impacted me, and I remember this when, I, when I'm really, really struggling, um, so... This was even before I adopted my son, Matt, but I went to a, um, I was just going to church one day uh, and I was in the Young Women's at the time and I um, I had showed up early for church, but I, I don't know how I didn't know this, but I, I showed up early and somebody from the bishopric said, hey, all the adults need to sit in the back because all the youth are going to be taking up the front of the chapel. And Elder Bednar was speaking. Uh, I was at a ward in, in San Clemente. Um, and, and so Elder Bednar showed up. I don't remember anything that he said except for this one line um, when he started his talk. And he, he said, your life is not about you. And I will never forget that. And when I am at my lowest, I, I don't know if I interpreted that line the same way that everybody interprets that line but it was what I needed to hear and what I what I take from that is when we are truly surrendering our lives to to our savior and listening to his promptings and being instruments in his hand and surrendering to his will is when we can find the most joy in our own lives. Um, I like to tell um, my Relief Society president when she asks, why do you minister? And I say, I do it for really selfish reasons because it makes me feel better about myself. Um, she's, you know, she, she laughs at me and she says, yeah, ha ha, that's really funny. And, but, but it's true when we, when we listen to our Savior and listen to his promptings and help other people and realize that I, we were placed here to help other people, then God can truly speak to us and work the miracles that he has for us in our lives. 
So is that how you reconcile maybe when the answer is no to miracles as well? Or, or how do you best deal with that? <laughs> yeah, so that's a hard one. Um, my, my life theme has been um, imagine. And when people would ask me, what does imagine mean? I have my, you know, the, the song imagine is, is, you know, my ring back tone on my phone. I have imagine signs all over my house. My brothers or my family would, anytime they saw anything that said imagine on it, they would buy it for me. And what does that mean to me? I would always say, you can have anything you want. There's nothing that is impossible with God. You know, it just depends on your faith and it depends on how bad you want it. And then when I started having miscarriages and realizing that it didn't seem to matter how bad I wanted it, I couldn't have it. And that was really, really hard for me to, you know, I guess negotiate my life theme. Um, but I guess what I've come to realize is I could still, I could still have it, obviously, because I was still able to be a mother. But you, you have to look at things like, you know, a terminal illness, and sometimes you, we have. It's so hard to, again, align ourselves and to accept the plan that God has in store for us. And even though I, you know, after that that incident where. I had that conversation with the Savior. I had six miscarriages after that conversation, you know, and each one I thought, okay, well, this is it. Obviously, you know, th this will be the one that will work. But I, I've never come anywhere near as close to as depressed as I was before that because I've been able to change to an internal perspective. And I, I feel I've got a whole basketball team up in heaven rooting with me, rooting for me, and, and wanting me to stay on the path. And I am a mom. I am a mom to them. And they, they need me. Um, uh, for when I get up there, I could feel them at Quinn's Adoption in the Celestial Room. And the, the sealer said, do you have any other kids? And we said, well, yeah, we've got three outside and we've got 10 or 12. I don't know. I lost count standing right next to us. And so you can go back to my bishop's blessing when he said this will work. And it did work because she was conceived. And in the next life, she will be ours. So um, it's really about changing your perspective and realizing that even though we go through really hard things here on earth those things can all still be ours in the next life and this life is such a small glimpse of eternity that's amazing you can keep that perspective i wish i was better at that <laughs> I work at it every day. <laughs> yeah, this is a lifelong pursuit. It's true. It's probably something we have to do every single day. It's a good yeah, you've touched on this a couple times, and I just one of the last things I want to ask you. But you know, you've not only faced a lot of the things that we have discussed today, but you've also 
um, had two of your brothers pass away. How do you continue to look for and believe in miracles? I mean, you were dealing with all this and your brother's passing away at the same time. How do you find hope in those times? Well, again, it's about finding and keeping that eternal perspective. Um, I've been truly fascinated with um, near-death experiences or people who have actually died and then come back to life and the way that they they talk about heaven um i know where my brothers are i feel them um i know that they're happy i know that they're out of pain i know that um they are holding hadley um, Quinn's identical twin. I know that they're playing with uh, um, my other children that I wasn't able to raise on this earth. And I know that they're that they're up there, you know, waiting for me and rooting for me. And uh, we just have to we have to look for those moments of joy. I mean, they're, they're so easy to find, um, you know, if we can just have that, if we can be grateful for the little things, you know, the, the little sweet tender mercies that I have with my little girls and the crazy things they say. Um, every time they ask for something, I, I say, well, I want world peace. And, and and they'll say, well, what kind of world peace, Mom? I'll say, um, the best kind. And Quinn says, well, how about chocolate world peace? <laughs> yes, definitely chocolate world peace. And then Paisley will say, well, what about rainbow chocolate world peace? And I'll say, oh, getting even better. Yes. <laughs> if you want that pink slime... I want world peace. And they'll both say, okay, mom, we'll get that for you. And how can you, your heart not just melts when you <laughs> have these little girls that want to give you chocolate rainbow world peace in exchange for cotton candy, pink slime. Um, you know, and I think God just, he gives us these, these sweet miracles. Um, Quinn has conversations with my brother Justin, I don't know, every other day. She only met him twice. And she will, I'll say, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a good example. She saw a, a tree. Um, we, we walk our dogs every day and we pass this tree. And there was a tree that was kind of like, you know, two different uh, trunks that were kind of woven around each other and Quinn says look mom there there's us and I'm like what do you mean there's us and she pointed at the tree and she said that tree mom that's us hugging each other and I'm like what what do you mean baby and and she was like no that's like our family tree that's like us hugging each other and I, I look at my husband, Tim, and I'm like, do you have any idea what she's talking about it? And, and he's like, no. And I'm like, okay, that's really sweet. Thanks, baby. Can I have a hug? You know, and we, when we give each other a hug. And, and I said, 
who told you that? You know, like, where did you hear that? And she said, oh, Uncle Justin told me that today. This was, this was several months after he had died. And if you, if you knew my brother Justin, he was, he loved trees. He wanted to be planted into a tree, wanted to be cremated and planted into a tree when he died. He loved trees. He's fascinated with, um, you know, the tree of life and every, his favorite color was green and he just, he loved trees. And just remembering, uh, you know, and having this eternal perspective and just realizing again that this is just such a small moment of eternity and realizing that God does have a plan and it's amazing and it's brilliant. And even when we're having those moments sobbing on our bathroom floors, like, God, your plan sucks. I'm sorry. I love you, but this plan sucks. I don't want any part of it. But just surrendering and realizing that his plan is amazing. Like I never could have even asked for what I have now. And you know, if I'm this happy now, like how happy am I going to be in the next life when I've got 12 kids? I don't know what I'm going to do with that many. Plus the five I have now. Um, that's way too many kids. But um, yeah, so that's that's how I continue to, uh, now I remember your question. That's how I continue to have hope and, and uh, you know, know that the miracles are there and we just have to align ourselves with with God's will and realize that his plan is way better than anything that we could ever dream of or even want for ourselves. You know, the one thing, like, as you've been talking that I thought just encapsulates you really well as a person is president Nelson said, miracles often occur when we are willing to trust in the Lord and act on the faith we have. And I think sometimes I get really intimidated by stories I hear in the scriptures of, Moses parting the Red Sea or these really crazy stories, right? These really insane miracles and thinking, how could I have faith like that? But I think a lot of times, just like what you were saying, what President Nelson was saying is, you know, faith sometimes is just getting up off of the floor or even though your car breaks down and your dogs are throwing up on you, you somehow know that something is going to get better. So you turn around anyways, right? And all these constant demonstrations of faith that you had even in your darkest moments well the the spirit never does leave us even in our darkest moments and even when we continue on that road to barstow (laughs) with dogs vomiting on us the spirit will correct us he's not he's not going to let us stray too far because god's love for us is beyond what we can comprehend and his plan will be carried out no matter what happens um and he has the he has this amazing thing in store for every single one of us and and it will happen and yes faith is hard and it's something that i have to work at every single day and i'll have to work at for the rest of my life and you just you have to keep going you have to keep going, you have to keep praying, you have to pay attention to these little miracles in your life and just be so grateful for these little moments, little miracles, big miracles, but they still happen every single day. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast Thank you for today. having me. I'm just going to end by asking you the same question we ask everyone. Um, at the end of our episodes, if 
you could write your little metaphorical three by five lunch card and share it with everyone. What would it say? Imagine. Thanks for listening and being with us on this week's podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and to leave us a review. Those reviews really help us get the word out to share this podcast with others. Our email is sharemystory at lettersfromthelunchbox.com. If you have a story you'd like to share, please email us, and we'd love to potentially bring you on the podcast to share it with others. We'll see you again for our next episode in two weeks.